Welcome back, everyone, to the Real Japan Podcast, where we bring you news topics from Japan every week. I am one of the hosts, Kenzo. And I am Ferg. And before we get started and jump into the news, we'll see what Ferg has been up to this past week. Yes, sir. So, the past week, I was just, you know, working away, doing my thing, and I looked out the window and I saw, like, a whole bunch of monkeys just outside in the sort of the grassy area outside my window. Wow, like how many? Oh, quite a few, like a pack of them, I guess. You know, maybe like 10 or so. Whoa. Yeah. It's quite interesting because although monkeys are not really dangerous, they're quite timid and, you know, they're much smaller than a human in general. But it can still be quite alarming when there's a big pack of them. I mean, they didn't notice me. And soon enough, they ran away when a neighbor kind of walked down that grassy bit. Hmm, okay, okay. But, if you are a child, old, or a woman, then it's probably worth being a little bit careful. They're not very dangerous to adult men. Because uh-huh. they kind of, they like to size people up. But if you are in right. one of those groups that I mentioned before, especially a child, a small child, that's probably the, the most dangerous. Yeah, 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 yeah. They can be a little bit more, what's the word, sort of aggressive, perhaps. Right. Uh, as I said, they're not really dangerous, but for me, a Brit, where we barely have any wildlife in, in the UK. I mean, mm-hmm. we do have wildlife, but not large wildlife. Not like yeah. bears and boars and monkeys and things like that, like we have in Japan. In the UK, it's more like badgers and foxes and smaller things. Right, right. So it can be quite alarming for me as a Brit, but if you do encounter any, the best thing to do is just to kind of keep going where you're going. Don't turn your back and run away. Keep going where you're going, you know, sort of look at them. Don't, like, turn your eyes away, but don't sort of, like, stare them out, you know. Mm -hmm. Basically, just show them that you're not afraid. Don't show them any weakness. And you should be fine. Cool. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's crazy, though, that you got, like, such wildlife just, like, outside of your house. Oh, yeah, certainly, yeah. Because yeah. Um, I think when you think about Japan, you think about it as pretty urban. You know, I mean, that's the, I think, the image that a lot of people have. But mm. there is quite a bit of wildlife out there. Oh, there is, certainly. I mean, we won't really have time to talk about it today, but in the past week, there's been a few stories about bears kind of becoming a little bit more, um, what's the word, sort of like they're exploring more into human areas. A bear Mm -hmm. sort of wandered into a shopping center recently in Ishikawa Prefecture. And also in Gunma Prefecture, a bear attacked a, a man, a poor man, who was just sitting outside in the good old Rotemburo, like the outside bath at the the hot springs. Yeah, he was just and chilling, and he got a got a rude surprise. He certainly did. I mean, black bears again, a bit more dangerous than monkeys, but 
not very dangerous overall to humans. They're very timid by nature. So, Mm -hmm. you know, so long as you don't surprise them, kind of creep up on them or anything like that, if you wear a bell and let them know you're coming, then chances are you'll be fine. Yeah. But as as, as you said, there is certainly plenty of wildlife in Japan. Yeah, for sure, yeah. More mm-hmm. than more than one might think. Yes, sir. Yeah. And, and what about you? How was your past week? Um, you know, were you just just hanging out? Were you not out in the wilds too? No, no. Although, um, uh, I guess the most eventful thing is I got hmm. the Game Gear Mini. Game Gear, like the old yeah. Sega one. Yeah, the handheld one, the color one. Really? Is that a re-release or is it? Did you yeah, buy an a, old it's one? It's a re-release, but it's um, I, I haven't I, I haven't even opened it yet. I was mm. thinking I might I might do it on camera when I open it, but uh, oh, that's a good idea. But yeah, they're, they're pretty crazy. They're they're tiny. Like, How large really are we tiny. talking about? iPhone size? No, 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 no. smaller than that. Really. Yeah, like the screen is about the size of like a postage stamp, apparently. Oh wow, is that large enough to see the games that you're playing? From what I've read, it's funny because I bought it, but I can't. I don't. I don't know because I haven't opened it. But <laughs> from <laughs> what I've read, uh, it's it's surprisingly playable, but it's pretty damn tiny. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't know they had released that. And so, will you just download the games online? No, no, no. It only has like two games. Oh, right. And it's funny the way they did it. There's a uh, mm. each game. Each one only has like two games, and there's like four different ones. Oh, I see. Mm. So if you want to play a certain game, you have to like buy it again. Yeah. <laughs> is this is it a Japan exclusive or is this yes, available is. worldwide? Yeah. Ah, I see. Because Sega's crazy like that. Yeah. yeah, they've always. I've always been a fan of Sega. Like I, mm. I didn't. I didn't have a uh, a Genesis or a Mega Drive. Mm. I have friends who had it, but uh, yeah, Sega's kind of quirky. Like they've always they've always been the underdog, and they're always uh, like willing to try out like weird ideas. Yeah. I didn't have a Mega Drive, but I did have a Master System, the predecessor. Oh, really? Yeah. That's, that's even more rare. Yeah. It's, yeah, you don't hear about them much, do you? But, yeah, I, like, I didn't know anyone who had a Master System when I was growing up. Mm, Everyone had have, the NES. Mm, perhaps they were a tiny bit more common in Europe. Yeah, compared- that's the impression I get, is that in, in Europe it was a bit more popular. Yeah, I think it was maybe about half half, perhaps. Really, you like just anecdotally, mm. it was it was that high the number of people that had them. Not sure. That's just my impression. Probably yeah. our furious listeners will write in saying, actually, the stats for the early nineteen nineties yeah. <laughs> show Nintendo had an eighty five percent grip on the market. But to me, there, I certainly had a few friends who had Segas and a few friends who had wow. Nintendos. I never had a Game Gear. I had a Game Boy, but I do remember one of my friends had a Game Gear, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever because it had that color screen. Yeah, it's it? color. Yeah, it was great. But the battery lasted like 
an hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. And it took six double A's. Are you kidding me? Yeah. 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 And it was heavy too, that thing. Oh yeah. It was it was a monster. Yeah. Probably like fifty percent bigger than a Game Boy. And the and the Game Boy was <laughs> chunky too. Yeah. Yeah, the back fir- in the day. Yeah, the first generation, yeah. But man, those old Game Boys with the funny screens as well that you had to kind of hold to the light. Right, yeah. And then uh it it would you would start getting lines, like permanent lines. Yeah. Down yeah. the screen as they got older. Yeah. Ah, fun well, times. You, you will have to update me and the listeners when you have tried it out. Yeah, for sure. And you can report back on the what did you say it's called? Game Gear Mini. Oh, uh, Game Gear Micro, excuse me. Oh, I see. And just quickly, before we move on to the news, what one did you opt for? What uh what games? No, I, I bought I bought all of them, man. I got oh, the you full, bought all I got four. the full set. <laughs> Sonic must be one of them, right? Yeah, there's a... Uh... Okay, so there's so uh, see. There's a okay, so there's a black one. Hmm. This one comes with Sonic, Puyo Puyo 2, Outrun, and Royal Stone. No, decent. And there's the blue one, which comes with Sonic Chaos, Gunstar Heroes, Sylvan Tail, and Baku Baku Animal. Hmm. I go for the first one over that one. Yeah. And there's the yellow one, which comes with uh three Shining Force games. And then Nazo Puyo. Hmm. Mm, sounds and good. And the red one, which comes with Shinobi Columns. That's good. That's oh, good yeah. One. Yeah. And uh, Megami Tensei Gaiden. And mm. Revelations the Demon Slayer. Hmm. That one sounds pretty good. Maybe that would be my second favorite after the first one. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And yeah, those are the four ones. And since I got like the limited edition complete set, I get a uh <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they actually give you a little magnifying glass that clips on. Really? To make the screen bigger. That's not a bad idea. Yeah. Which which is a a recreation of because there was an actual product like that too back in the day, if you remember that. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. yeah. So they, uh, yeah, they put a lot of work into it. Mm. So yeah, it'll be fun to crack that open. Yes, sir. But uh, I guess we'll uh, move on to the news roundup then. Yep, just a quick roundup of some of the major stories that have been happening in Japan in the past week before we mm-hmm. jump into our in-depth. Uh, news analysis but did you have a story for our roundup uh, we'll start out with um, just a quick one the headline is 150 pears are stolen from an orchard in Saitama oh, in no. the latest fruit theft so oh, and these no. are um, Japanese pears otherwise known as nashi they, uh, mm. they look kind of if you've never seen one uh, pears are normally pear shaped, but <laughs> yeah. the uh, the Japanese ones are pretty, pretty much looks like an apple. Yeah. But then yeah. when you bite into it, it it's a pear. Yeah. 
So they call like Western pears La France, right? Yeah, either that or or they just call it a Yonashi. Yeah, Western one. pear. Mm. So yeah, Western pear or Western yashi. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um. But yeah, there have been a lot of. We we did a piece on here. Berg found an article about livestock theft. Mm. Uh, maybe a, a month or two back, and yeah, there were also cherries stolen in Yamagata. Right. Yeah. So this As is well, um, it's becoming kind of a common thing lately, where livestock and and uh, produce are just being stolen. Yes. Yes. Certainly. And. Uh, yeah, I, I, mean, I don't know what I don't know how they're laundering their produce. Yeah, Are we selling it on Facebook. Right, exactly. But I mean, the thing is, here in Japan, fruit is so expensive, isn't it? Then, mm-hmm, yeah. Well, they they do they do it to themselves. I think get no sympathy from me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because of all the, the damn government subsidies given to and the tariffs. Yeah, it is a little bit like, you know, in the UK, for example, you go to the supermarket and you buy a bag of apples and Mm -hmm. it's relatively cheap and the apples are just all mashed together in a bag and occasionally one or two of them will be bashed in Japan. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I feel you on that, yeah. It's more like you go to the supermarket and you buy a box of apples and they all have little polystyrene things around them so that they're... And they're all huge, about twice the size of like a, an apple in the UK. Yeah. It costs you yeah. about four times the price as well. It's kind of like buying fruit in Japan. It's a bit of a different experience. I mean, it has been in recent years, you can get more kind of like the everyday fruit, like for certain things, you know, bananas and sometimes imported fruit as well. But in general, it tends to be more expensive, but kind of bigger and fancier, I suppose you would say. Yeah, I, th- I think the problem is there's no... I, th- I think we talked about rice too mm. uh, a couple episodes back, but there's no there's no choice, really, because yeah. you know, like you're saying in the UK or or in in the US, you know, back home for me, yeah, there's there's a, a, an entire range of different you know apples or whatever, mm. right? I mean, you, you can go for some of the high end stuff. Or if you're strapped for cash or, you know, you don't you know, particularly care, you can get some of the low-end stuff. And there's a whole spectrum of, for just about any type of produce. But, yeah, over here, I mean, you just, you're stuck with the high-end stuff, basically. Yeah, certainly. And there's really no no options available for uh, for something if you just want to get something on the cheap. Which, mm. um, yeah, it can be problematic for people with lower incomes or but i don't know it's just uh it's just how it is it certainly is isn't yeah. it well we will have to watch these watch out for these stories of fruit thieves yes the fruit thievery yes sir so in another quick story in our roundup uh good old boy yoshihide suga the prime minister of this great nation uh, re-released his book called uh, Seiji Kano Kakugo, roughly the commitment of a politician, something like that. And yeah. the 
This book was originally published back in 2012 when he was actually an opposition politician in the brief period when the Democratic Party of Japan uh, held power. It, you know, it's, it's normally like the LDP, but, yeah. you know, for this brief period, Suga was an opposition period politician and he wrote this book. And in it, he drew attention to the importance of good record keeping. Now, this uh, followed from the, on from the Fukushima disaster when the DPJ, who was in power at the time, was accused of not keeping good records of meetings and things about dealing with the disaster. So, you know, he mm-hmm. wrote a lot in that book about how important it is for governments to keep good records. And... Now that he has re-released his book, those parts uh, have been found to be missing by the local media here. They compared the two versions side by side, the original version and the re-released version, and found that a lot of that stuff on keeping good records has been taken out. And perhaps this has something to do with the fact that the Abe administration, of which Suga was a major player as the cabinet secretary, yep. uh, ha- <laughs> was yeah. widely criticized for not keeping good records. Yeah, they were pretty bad at keeping records. <laughs> they were very bad. Of course, this uh, included the sort of um, claims of tampering with records, as in the Moritomo Gakuen land scandal. Well, yes, I mean, you could say they kept good records <laughs> because <laughs> there was actually something to get rid of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, although they there were just straight-up claims of not keeping good records as well, such as in... <laughs> I mean, in meetings to do with the coronavirus, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, they were widely criticized for not having kept good uh, good minutes of, of meetings and things and records. Mm, mm-hmm. So the media here has basically had a field day comparing the two versions and, you know, <laughs> seeing what what they decided to take out in the new version. Yeah, you got you got to wonder, I mean, did he... <laughs> Let's expect people to not notice, or that seems a bit right, naive. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Oh well. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't put it past them just to think that people weren't going to notice. Yes, sir. Uh, certainly. Uh. Um. Okay, got got another quick topic here. So mm-hmm. one of uh, while we're on the topic of Mr. Suga. Uh, one of the prime minister's big policy pushes is going to be, and and he was pushing for this since before he became prime minister. But he firmly believes that uh, Japanese cell phone plans are too they're too damn high. Yeah, this has been a kind of political talking point for a while, hasn't it? Mm-hmm, yeah, and and uh, granted, I think he's right. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, in recent years, we've seen the introduction of these kind of cheap SIM cards. Right. But certainly prior to that, there was not... The problem was that there wasn't really any difference there were, or any real competition. You know, you could switch between the four big mobile providers, but all the plans were more or less the same and you ended up paying the same. Yeah it's, plan yeah, it's funny. I, I, mm. it's, um, it's really like a cartel. Mm. Cell phone carriers yeah. over here because they yeah. all... And I'm sure they don't actually talk amongst themselves because then they'd really be in trouble. But pretty much all there's there's three major carriers now, and each one just looks at the other guys and prices their plans exactly the same. 
Yeah, so the exactly. pricing is identical. Like it's it's almost comical when you go compare them because they're they're exactly the same. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So in any case, um, Mr. Suga wants the cell phone prices, the plan prices to come down. And in his latest uh, strong request to the mobile phone carriers, he's telling them to allow customers to keep their mobile email addresses when they switch carriers. Because they've, we've been allowed to keep our phone numbers for a while now, which I think is pretty standard uh, across the world. You can keep the same phone number when you switch. But uh, in Japan, I think more so than in the West, people use their carrier assigned email address for communication on their uh, on the. So you know, if you're if you're a customer yep. at uh, Docomo, which is mm. one of the big ones, they uh, you'll have you know blah 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 at Docomo ne.jp will be your your docomo email address which you can use like any other email address and if i switch from docomo to softbank for instance i can take my phone number over but i'll lose my docomo address which is understandable because i'm not a customer with them anymore hmm. but uh, mr suga's argument is that that's creating uh a Pretty significant barrier, I guess, for people who would otherwise consider switching or switch, but mm -hmm. they don't want to. Maybe they've given out their that particular email address to a bunch of people. Maybe they use it for their small business, that kind of thing. So that maybe they want to switch, but they can't. You know, they're kind of tied down. So he wants to get rid of that annoyance and, and I, I can relate because i i'm i'm on docomo right now and they're like i would like to switch i think because docomo typically is the most expensive of the three even though they're mostly the same but yeah people do say that docomo has the best coverage though right yeah supposedly yeah they got the best coverage yeah mm. um but yeah, I've definitely considered switching, or maybe I would switch. But because um, my my mother is on our plan, you know, I just have her on our plan, and I pay the bill as a family plan because it's cheaper than doing it separately. Um, but my mother actually uses her her Docomo email to talk with her, keep in touch with her friends. Yeah. And so I haven't really, like, it hasn't really been a realistic option to switch because of that. So if, if this goes through, then I might finally be able to to show them the door. Yeah. Because they charge too much. Yeah, certainly. And the way the mobile phone contracts work in Japan is if you just stay on the same contract for years, it's not, it becomes, like, less and less good value, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, the way mm -hmm. to... If you really want to try and do what you can to extract value out of these contracts, you need to keep on switching, switching providers and switching phones and things because they offer like discounts for, you know, for switching. Yeah, basically, yeah, you need to switch every two years if you want to like mm. maximize your, yeah, your value for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I plan to try and switch to a, a cheap SIM soon 
one of the budget sims as they're known here in Japan, where they basically, it you know, it's like a company, and they sort of lease the like network space, I guess you might call it. Yeah, the from, uh, MVNOs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. From the big uh, cell phone providers, which you know allows them to offer sort of cheaper plans. So I might try and switch to them soon if I can. But as you said, there's a bit of a hassle involved with switching, so it's not particularly easy. Yeah, and I'm sure it's uh, partially on purpose to kind of make it a pain in the ass. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that is quite a big theme, though, of Suga's government, so there could well be more uh, stories coming up on that in future. Yeah, the... and I think if he plays his mm. cards right, it could be beneficial for him politically too because i mean this is oh, something is, it affects everyone you know so if suddenly your monthly bills are you know looking looking cheaper then it'll be like hey that's that's my boy he, he's power to the people you know oh yeah certainly yeah. i think that this would definitely be popular with ordinary people in japan so yeah we'll keep an eye on that yes sir so just quickly the coronavirus numbers um, there is still a kind of trickle of news about coronavirus. It's kind of just seems to be going along at the same pace here in Japan as it has been doing for months, mm -hmm. despite the worrying rise in infections in the West recently. So uh, there were 620 new cases in the 24 hours leading up to 9 a.m. on the 21st of October and seven deaths. This included 150 new cases in Tokyo. Mm. So numbers slightly on the high side, but basically more or less in line with the numbers that we've seen for the past few months, roughly hovering around the kind of 500 mark, 400, 500 mark for quite a while now. Yeah, yeah. Figures from the day before, actually, when it was 483 cases, included a cluster of six people in their 70s to their 90s in a nursing home in Kushiro in Hokkaido. So hopefully they are um, recovering. I mean, I know that the kind of older age groups are more at risk from coronavirus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I did, uh, just quickly before we move on to our main stories, I did read an interesting article about the coronavirus's uh, effect on Kabukicho, basically the center of the kind of nightlife of Tokyo. Yeah, where there and are many... the nightlife of Japan. Yeah. And it's pretty much the the spot for the nightlife. Yes, sir, certainly. And it's been interesting to see how this area and the people working there and the businesses there have been kind of, what would you say, they've been sort of targeted or villainized, I suppose, by yeah uh, the media yeah. and by politicians perhaps just because they're an easy target i don't know perhaps their criticism is somewhat legitimate when it is a business that's or a lot of these businesses are focused on close contact perhaps i suppose you would say between yeah. patrons and and hostesses and hosts as well in some and cases. i think there was uh, there's no love lost because they uh g typically they don't really pay their taxes yeah because yeah. it's, uh, it's a bit one of those gray area industries. Exactly. And a lot of, you know, hostesses and things will make money cash in hand. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 
you know, particularly for things like, you know, the bulk of a hostess's sort of wages, from what I understand, will come from these extra uh, services, things extra like curricular activities. <laughs> exactly. You know, bonuses, for example, for going out on dates with with uh, customers. Mm -hmm. They call it in Japanese. So a lot of this, I'm sure, will be cash in hand. And as you said, that perhaps affects the political relationship or the relationship with politicians and the government. But I do think that they are just an easy target in general because there are lots of people who kind of have a negative view of, of this yeah, industry. Yeah, yeah. Re right. Regardless of the tax situation, yeah, they, they're just they're kind of viewed as a, a, a lower rung of society by many. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in this article, it was talking basically about how the industry is adapting given the, you know, a lot of the, the ways bars and things have been forced to close early and the way there are fewer customers now. So mm -hmm. according to the article, a lot of hostesses are sort of contacting some of the clients they know well directly and then just meeting them in bars and things and receiving cash in hand that way. Oh, so they're like uh, private contractors now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. But if their taxes were sort of paid or not paid before, well, they're certainly not being paid now. But oh yeah, for sure, yeah. But hey, they got to make a living somehow. You know, they got to eat. Yeah, yeah. Pe uh, people got to pay the bills. So yes, sir. I mean, there was the one hundred yen, uh, sorry, one hundred thousand yen handout, about a thousand dollars, back in the summer. That was it kind of varied a bit by by region. Yeah, but, yeah May, this, June, July, that time frame. Exactly. But as this situation has gone on and become more prolonged, you know, that one-off payment is going to sort of not be helping people so much yeah, now, yeah. you know, the people that are really suffering. So it could well be a kind of ticking time bomb of economic disaster. The, you know, not just Kabukicho, not just the nightlife, I suppose, but a lot of the sort of people whose employment was a little bit precarious you know, sort of doing part-time jobs and things and just scraping by. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right. Shall we move on to our main stories? Yeah, okay. Uh, I guess I will start out. So this just came in uh, yesterday. Yeah. It was announced on Wednesday, the 21st. Yep. Uh, but J So JR, Japan, Japan Railway, I guess, is... Uh, the company's name but yep. they, they more or less provide the bulk of passenger rail service in across japan and each region has like a different because I, I think back in the day it was nationalized and then they privatized it uh yeah a couple of decades ago and so now each region has its own separate rail operator mm. but i mean they're more or less all the same and yeah the, jr east is a big one in tokyo right yeah. And so the one that operates the lines in the greater Tokyo area has announced that they will move up the last train of the evening. Mm. So it'll, it'll be earlier than it was. By an average of about 20 minutes, depending on the line. Yeah. So what are we talking about? Usually about half past midnight, so twelve thirty. Yeah, generally, yeah. To 
So now it will be about midnight, I suppose. Yeah, or even before midnight, maybe, depending mm. on the line. Yeah. And their reasoning is, just pe- like, there's just less people. So, you know, it's it's eating into their profits, I'm sure. Because they're having to operate these trains that no one's on. Um, and also, they're, uh, just people aren't drinking as much. And if you've ever been on a late night train in the Tokyo area, you know pretty like at least half the people on there are drunk, and they're yes sir. trying to stumble home. But the reaction has been mixed around town. So some businesses are saying this is terrible because they uh, they're going to lose customers because customers are going to be going home earlier. So they're not going to hang around as long, and they're not going to spend as much money. Uh, but then other industries, like the taxi industry, are dancing in the streets because when people miss the last train, they got to take a taxi home. So it'll yeah. be great for them. Mm. And other, and also, I thought this was an interesting contrast. So in just as a bit of background, in in Japan. If a restaurant or a bar wants to be open past midnight, then you need a separate, uh, like a permit from the from the police uh, to allow you to stay open until 5 a.m., I believe, is the, the next cutoff. So yeah. you, you will find if you, if you go out drinking or, you know, just partying late at night over here, that there'll be like the first wave of stores closing at around 12. And then if something's open past 12, it's usually open till either three or five is uh, generally how that works. And the, uh, the restaurants slash bars that are open until 12 are going to be hurting because they're, uh, they're just going to, people are, you know, just not going to be there as long. But the ones that are open till three or five are saying this is great because if people miss the train, then it, it, pretty much it'll be easier for people to miss the train. So with nothing to do until the first train, which is usually around 5 a.m., they'll, uh, hmm. they'll go hang out, maybe spend some more money while they wait. Yeah. So that will Interesting. be... Yeah, this this is gonna be interesting to see how that uh how this plays out. But I mean, it looks like it's a done deal. They're uh, they're they're gonna do it. Yeah. Um, starting in the spring. It yeah. is interesting, isn't yeah. it? It'll be interesting to see how uh, how people change their habits after this goes yeah. into effect. Certainly, I mean, listeners outside Japan might perhaps not sort of appreciate, but the. The timing of the last train is actually quite a big deal here in Japan, isn't it? You know, there are plenty of people that time their going home and when they finish drinking and things, they time it for the last train. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Often. Um, it Certainly, as you said, it will be interesting to see how it affects things here. So is this not a temporary measure for coronavirus? Is that, they, this is it now? They're, they're changing the last train and it's going to be like that for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I think yeah, 
from from what I read, yeah, I mean this this, this is just going to be the new schedule from now on, mm-hmm. or from starting in the spring. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Probably my guess would be that they have been wanting to do this sometime because they know that people have got to get home somehow. You know, yeah. If they if they move the trains forward, uh, as in they make them earlier, then. I mean, probably it's still going to be the same number of people getting the trains anyway. It just mm-hmm. means that they, they don't have to keep them open for so long. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Do you think yeah. it will affect you? Will it mean less wild nights out for you? Um, Like, I've... Personally, I've never been a last train person. Mm. I, I'll, I'll, just because I hate the last train because it's jam-packed like sardines and yeah. it just reeks of alcohol because yeah. everyone on there has been drinking so yeah I'll like anytime I go out I'll either take a slightly earlier train because even if you get like the second or third to last one it is a huge difference like it'll be it'll be almost empty the second or third to last one yeah, certainly. Yeah, so I always did that. Or I just say, screw it, and I'll stay out until, like, 5. Yeah, yeah. So, personally, I mean, yeah, I don't think it really affect me too much. Mm. The thing about taxis is that it can get very expensive oh, quite yeah. quickly. Because many mm. people sort of live quite far away from where they work here in Japan. But because the transport system is good, they can... You know, they can usually get to work and things in a relatively quick amount of time. But as soon as they need to take a taxi, you know, suddenly you're looking at, you know, $100 or more even in some cases. Yeah, like for me, uh, so to get to the office, you know, I'll, I'll walk to the station. And I'll take a train and then I'll, I'll walk a bit from the station. And the actual fare for the train is I don't know, like $5, give or take. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly how much it is, but. If if I took a cab, like let's say I was out drinking and then I missed the last train and I had to take a cab. If I took a cab, it would probably be, I would say $150, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is insane if you think about it. Yeah, right, yeah, certainly. Yeah. And I think that is not a unique situation by any means. I think that's very common for many people living in Japan, isn't it? Mm, yeah, I think for, for many people, yeah. If they took a cab from work to their home, it was, it's probably like you mentioned, yeah. Most people would probably be in the neighborhood of about $100. Yeah. So quite big news, eh? It is interesting because I know in the UK, I'm not sure... What has happened with this lately? Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's died down because of coronavirus. But there was a big kind of movement to try and make the tube stay open twenty four hours. The London Underground. Ooh, you know, in the same way as it is in New York, I believe. Yeah, right? New York, yes, yeah, twenty four hour. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it seems like Tokyo is kind of going in the other direction. I mean, it doesn't really affect me personally, but I do think it will be quite interesting to see how it changes things. Mm-hmm. There is not a lot of options, are there, for travel and getting around late at night, really. Uh, after you miss that last train, as we said, cabs are too expensive. There's no real, like, night buses. 
either. That's the thing. No. I mean, London has night buses. I mean, there are like one or two services I've seen, but they're not very widely used from what I understand. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, I never really thought about it like that, but it is kind of weird how, like, if you miss the last train, then <laughs> you're just screwed. Like, you can't, like, you're stuck wherever you are for yeah. the next four to five hours, unless you want to pay out the ass for a taxi. Yeah, and as you said, that's why so many people, I think, uh, end up staying out drinking until the first train at 5 yeah. a.m., you know, if they miss their, their last train. Or they go to, like, an internet cafe or some something like that. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always that. You know, wait out a few hours there. You know, it's. It, I did find that was one of the things I that surprised me when I first came to Japan. You know, in the UK, clubs will maybe close around 1 or 2 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And... So it's very strange for me to come here to Japan and see that many kind of bars and clubs and things are open until, yeah, like you said, about 5 a.m., 5 or 6 a.m. Yeah, because people got nothing to do until the train. Yes, sir. Yeah. Certainly. So, yeah, we'll, uh, mm. we'll, we'll keep you all posted on that, when, uh, especially when it comes into effect, see, uh, see if it changes things. Yes, sir. But, yeah, that's it for me. Uh, next story. So, today I want to talk about our old friend, Toshihiro Nikai, who we have talked about before. He's an 81-year-old Secretary General of the LDP. Powerful figure. So, a powerful figure. But first, before we start talking about him, this story uh, concerns integrated resorts basically casinos and i thought this would be interesting because we mentioned a quick little news item about integrated resorts uh last time yeah so apologies to listeners who heard last week's episode but just to quickly recap for listeners that aren't in the know um you know basically different cities in japan are bidding at the moment to host integrated resorts integrated resorts here they contain like a number of things accommodation shopping restaurants and things but the reason they're kind of the topic of debate and of discussion and all this fuss in the media is because they also uh, are allowed to have casinos in them which previously have not been allowed in japan yep the government plans to give out three licenses so most likely at some point in the next 10 years we will have three integrated resorts popping up somewhere in the country yeah it's probably going to be Tokyo area, Osaka area, and other, somewhere else. Yes, yeah. yes. And as we discussed last week, basically the whole kind of initiative, the whole thing about integrated resorts has been mired in controversy. We had this bribery scandal where two advisors to a Chinese company, the advisors themselves were Japanese, but the company was uh, Chinese that wanted to you know, that was considering bidding to build a an integrated resort in Japan, were found guilty of bribing a politician involved in this initiative. Yep. And then and then in a, a a strange turn of events, the politician was arrested on charges of reverse bribery, I suppose you might call it, kind of bribing them back to provide um favorable testimony in court. Yeah. And uh, and well Officially, they said it was because of coronavirus, but perhaps because of the controversy 
and all the mess surrounding the whole integrated resort scenario uh, situation, the government pushed the deadline back for the cities to submit their bids to host these integrated resorts mm. from July 2021 to April 2022. And, you know, we've also seen the big American casino operators, Las Vegas Sands and Wynn Resorts, basically pulled out, not interested in Japan anymore, it seems. Yeah. Perhaps because of all this mess. And kind of, we're seeing some of the fallout of this, the controversy and the corruption. Or maybe the whole system, maybe the whole thing, the whole system just didn't look favorable enough to the to the business operators yeah i think but, one of the uh hmm. one of the issues with the, the, the japanese way uh the, their process for opening uh integrated resort is i i believe i read somewhere that the casino license is it has to be renewed every 10 years and yeah up front you have to get the license when you begin construction. And then construction takes, I don't know, let's just say five years. So you're essentially, you're getting nothing for, because those licenses aren't cheap. So yeah, you're, you're like, your initial costs are astronomical, I guess, because you're paying for a license which you can't use. And then, you know, just a couple of years after you actually open, you got to renew it. Yeah. And I mean, the whole way, like, the thing is designed in Japan is that, like, when, you know, when cities are submitting their bids, which will basically, the final bids will be done um, with, together with, like, the planned business operators. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not just about building this integrated resort with the casino inside it. You have to show that you will, you know, that you have plans for the area as a whole, that you'll, you know, transform it basically and make it into this this vibrant center of economic activity and tourism. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, boils down to basically saying, you know, how much money are you going to invest in this area? Yeah, right, right. So I think as, you know, as you kind of alluded to there, you know, probably for the business operators, it just doesn't, you know, the the costs and things involved with that probably in some cases have seemed to them like they will outweigh the potential gain from from the uh, the projects. Yeah, the money is probably better spent elsewhere for a, lo- a lot of the operators, which explains why they're they're pulling out or they just weren't interested in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So let's go back to. Now that we've kind of uh, recapped the situation with integrated resorts, let's go back to Toshihiro Nikai, the 81-year-old Secretary General of the LDP. And we mentioned him on this podcast before in connection with the go-to travel campaign because it just so happens that he is the chairman of the All Nippon Association, sorry, All Nippon Travel Agents Association. And of course, the go-to travel campaign is very favorable for travel agents because if you basically you lose out if you don't kind of book your holiday through a travel agent. Yeah, it's structured such that it almost forces you to use a travel agent, which is uh, rather convenient since he's the chairman. Uh, Yeah, 
Exactly. Now, he's kind of a, an interesting figure, 81 years old. He's described in the Japanese media as like this kind of don, like a, as in like a mafia kind of don almost, which is what they call for these kind of LDP kingmakers almost, like the people who run these factions. Mm -hmm. You know, for listeners not familiar with Japanese politics, it's the way it works basically is that the LDP is always in power, but within the LDP there's power struggles between different factions. And yeah, it's a it's a proper five families type situation with uh, how the LDP works. It, it it certainly is, yeah. And the faction that Nikai uh, controls is called like the Nikai faction, or it has the other name, the Shisuikai, and it's one of the largest in the LDP. And mm. you know, according to the media, at least it was a major player in Suga's overwhelming uh, victory and his step up to PM after Abe stepped down. I mean, I think he was always a favorite, but... Yeah, yeah. But I mean, once the Nikai faction kind of declared their support for him, he had it in the bag. Mm -hmm. But he's no stranger to scandal and Nikai. You know, as I mentioned, the go-to travel campaign thing looks a little bit shady perhaps also big news earlier this year uh Anni kawaii who's the uh wife of a politician sorry she is also a politician yeah and her yeah. and her husband have been her husband sorry is katsuki uh kawaii and together they have been at the center of a kind of vote buying scandal that's been major news and they also, uh, oh, well, sorry, I don't have the information for Katsuki Kawaii, but certainly her, his wife, uh, Anni Kawaii, was part of the Nikkei faction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And apparently uh, she received, according to an article I read, about 150 million yen in election funds, like 1.5 million US dollars, roughly, which apparently is about 10 times more than most candidates would receive. Yeah, she received it from, from the party headquarters, right? Exactly, exactly. And it the thing about uh, Toshihiro Nikkei is apparently has a lot of sort of control over the finances as Secretary General of the LDP. Mm -hmm. He's very close, mm -hmm. apparently, to the people in like the the LDP headquarters that control the purse strings. Yeah. And, you know, in addition, well, oh, well, sorry, perhaps because of that, he, he received apparently about 2.7 billion yen himself from the LDP headquarters between 2016 and 2018, you know, roughly 27 million US dollars for what is roughly translated as like policy activities and <laughs> policy activities i like that yeah <laughs> well apparently this is a kind of item that basically there's not a lot of accountability for it seems as far as i understand so it's yeah kind of I, like I, a... I think you're right it's more or less just a blank check and well well it's a it's not a blank check i mean there's a there's a number on it but the uh yeah it's it's like one big slush fund for 
whatever you want to do with it as long as it's somewhat remotely related to your office then it's all good yeah exactly and you know so he's certainly done quite well out of that and perhaps as i said that is related to his position in the ldp and his close relationship with like the ldp headquarters as secretary general Mm -hmm. he also does quite well from his his faction the Nikai faction or the Shisukai as I mentioned in 2018 apparently his the annual kind of income from that most of which I'm presuming went to him then he uses it he dishes it back out to whoever you know in in ways that he sees fit to support the causes that he uh, supports uh, he received uh, 260 million yen according to the article I I read about two point six million dollars in two thousand and eighteen from his faction. So, you know, basically, he has plenty of resources. He's doing quite well yeah. himself, and you know, he's kind of like this. He's not really at the forefront of of politics, but he's like one of these real power brokers behind the scenes. Probably the the power broker who is yeah. Kind he doesn't really. Know, Mm. come out too much he's he's not a very uh, i mean he is a public figure but he's not he's not out giving interviews and that kind of thing you know he's kind of just chills behind the scenes and make makes all the backroom deals that kind of thing exactly backroom deals exactly so now let's go back to wakayama and Basically, as as you mentioned at the start, so probably we're going to see, I think most people are expecting like one integrated resort in the Tokyo or Yokohama kind of area, probably one in the Osaka or West Japan, Kansai area, and one somewhere else, I don't know, maybe in Kyushu or Hokkaido or somewhere. Yeah. And Wakayama is probably the big contender with Osaka city itself. So, you know, it's probably either going to be in Wakayama or in in uh, Osaka, mm-hmm. the, the one in West Japan. And Wakayama Prefecture has designated a site uh, called Marina City as their preferred site to host a an integrated resort. Now, I'm sure it's probably not going to surprise you, but Nikai is, you know, his district is in Wakayama. He has been elected 12 times to well, well, well. Represent a particular district, the Wakayama 3rd District. So let's just bear that in mind. So he has very strong local connections here. Mm-hmm. Now, Marina City was, it's kind of like one of these places. It was developed as like a global resort. It's kind of like a, or like a theme park that looks a bit like a Mediterranean village. It's you know, I'm sure people who have been to Japan will know, but some of these places like Odaiba in Tokyo, you know, there's there's one in Kyushu as well. What's it called? The Hutenbosch or something like that. Oh, yeah. It's got... Um... Has a funny name, but... Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like... I mean, Marina City in Wakayama is kind of another one of these places. Like a sort of... It's on reclaimed land. It's like a reclaimed... Uh, it's an island, an artificial island, basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's kind of like a big theme park, uh, shopping, 
leisure area, I suppose you would say. Yeah. Where, and the prefecture is designated as it as their their site, their preferred site to host a casino. And I'm sure you're not going to be surprised to hear that Nikai has very strong links with the Marina City site. Have you ever heard the name Hirofumi Kado? Mm, no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> no, sorry, I didn't think you would, but he's another <laughs> politician who represents a district in Wakayama. Okay. And, of course, he is a member of the Nikai faction. Naturally. Naturally. And in a former life, he was an employee, you know, before he became a politician, mm. he was an employee of a company called Matsushita Kosan. And he was actually the president of a kind of related company. So, you know, he, he was a, a kind of big player in this yeah. company. And this company is notable because that's the company that developed Marina City. Okay. So he's, he's in the faction and he used to work for the company that, that developed the area. So there's a fat contract incoming? Oh, well, I mean, who knows? But it doesn't end there. So. Now, on the way to get to this proposed site for the IR, you pass through a kind of, like, a sort of, I'm not sure what to call it, like an empty, kind of overgrown, unused bit of land. So, like a wasteland. You, yeah, kind of a wasteland, a bit of land that's not being used much. Yeah. And then you cross a bridge and you go onto this kind of the artificial island, the reclaimed land. Mm-hmm. And this bit of land I'm talking about is about 10,000 square meters in size. So, like the size of a city block, roughly. Okay, oh, so it's not a huge piece of land by any means. No, it's not huge, but it's, you know, it's large. Decent size. Yeah, certainly, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, we're not talking like acres and acres and acres here. Mm. And this land, you know, it has not been worth that much really i suppose in the past but if they if this site marina city is chosen as the site of the integrated resort then presumably the price of this land or the value of it will increase significantly yeah and it just so happens that this land is owned by a company based in wakayama called kazumichi kazumichi provides kind of care services you know like care for the elderly running mm-hmm. nursing homes things like that Interestingly enough, they bought the land around 2004, which was right around the time that Wakayama first started talking about having a casino in Wakayama, Uh the possibility of having a casino in Wakayama. Uh, But for some reason, perhaps because the sort of plans related to having integrated resorts and moving moving forward on that front kind of like faltered and stalled and then... You know, there was lots of discussion and it went on for a long time. And now here we finally are sort of moving more towards that. Yeah. They sold the land to, a few years later, they sold it to a company based in Osaka, kind of solar power company. But then they bought it back again in 2009. And then the company sold it to the president of the company, Jitsuhiro Nakata, he was called. He's he's passed on now. He's dead. But mm. Then they bought it back again. In 2014. What are they doing? That's a a bit interesting, isn't it? They kind of sold it a few times and then bought it back a few times. Uh, You know there's something shady going on there. (laughs) 
<laughs> Surely not. What? That's normal. Normal like who, business. Like who does that? You you buy the same piece of land like three times. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But uh, Kenzo, would you be surprised to learn that this Jitsuhiro Nakata, who I said has passed on, um, he was a very strong supporter of Nikai. Oh, so they're bros. They're bros. He or they were bros. He well, yeah. kind of managed uh, posters and things and communication with the mass media, mm. at, you know, for Nikai's uh, election campaigns. Calling him, he called himself like the head of the public relations department. But this was not, as I understood it, at least not. You know, this is kind of his little joke. Not like he wasn't officially. That yeah, wasn't his yeah. Official yeah. title. He was running his company, Kazumichi. But, you know, Kazumichi, the company, was also involved with Nikai's publications and provided, like, the kind of admin services for Nikai's a committee set up by Nikai mm-hmm. on improving tourism in Wakayama. Uh, Jitsuhiro Nakata uh, died, as I said, he passed away in 2017, and Nikai was actually, like, the chairman at his funeral. Oh, wow, okay. So they, so yeah, they so were they, really close. They were very close. Yeah. And now, um, oh, uh, oh, oh, also, sorry, just one other thing as well. Nikai's eldest son, who works as Nikai's kind of secretary mm. on, you know, kind of policy secretary, I suppose you might call him, but he also submitted, you know, because they have to kind of declare relationships and things. So apparently he submitted to the diet or whoever a notice that he was also working at a group company of Kazumichi. Wow, everything's so intertwined. (laughs) Everything's very intertwined. The group also donated a significant amount of money, about 3.8 million yen, to... Nikai, uh, Nikai's campaign mm-hmm. over the years between 2016 to 2018. This does include individual donations from uh-huh. the president and other people as well. As I mentioned, uh, Nakata, Jitsuhiro Nakata, uh, he passed away, he died. So now it's his eldest son who runs the, the group. He's the president of Kazumichi. Let me send you a picture just because he's kind of an interesting uh, and interesting figure <laughs> looks a bit interesting just want to see what you think of this oh wow yeah, he's a uh... looks like a character yeah he's got a funky hair hairstyle <laughs> he certainly does it's like a, it's like a, a bowl cut but with a perm <laughs> yeah yeah it's not it's not one you see very often yeah. is it Wow, okay. So this is our boy. Mm. This is our boy. So, I mean, was there any involvement from Nikai asking, you know, Kazumichi to buy the land or telling them to buy the land or anything like that? Who knows? It's just speculation. But, you know, there have been scandals in the past about politicians using their connections to snap up land that would later become very valuable. Yeah, yeah. One of the most well-known was uh, Kakue Tanaka, who was actually, he was prime minister of Japan in the 70s, but before he was prime minister, 
when he was like the finance minister, he bought up a lot of cheap land on the banks of the Shinano River in Nagoka. And then all of a sudden, you know, the the land suddenly increased in value significantly when, just by coincidence, the construction ministry started, you know, lots of new projects in the area. Wow, how'd that happen? How did that happen? You know, big coincidence. Yeah. It, you know, it is interesting to note that he was also the secretary general of the LDP before Nikkei. So that's a little, little coincidence there. He was actually the longest running secretary of the LDP. Hmm. Secretary general of the LDP until his record was broken by none other than good old Nikkei. Yeah. And just a couple of other tidbits, because we're running on a little a little bit over now, but just very quickly. So, as I mentioned, you need to go past this land to get to the reclaimed island, to go over the bridge to get to the reclaimed island. Mm -hmm. There is one other bridge onto the island, and the land around that other bridge is actually owned by Kansai Electric Power Company, or Kanden, as it's known uh, in Japan for short. Yep. And they had a power station on that land, but it was decommissioned last year. Okay. And they've started talking now, it seems, apparently, about using this land perhaps in some way related to a casino or an IR. Yeah. The interesting thing about this is that you would expect uh, Kansai Electric Power, which is headquartered in Osaka, to be more supportive of the Osaka bid yeah. to hold an IR, but for some reason lately they have become it seems a little bit more positive toward Wakayama holding the IR. Oh, what if there's someone the IR. someone pushing some buttons behind the scenes? Hmm, huh? I wonder. Well, Shosuke Mori, the former chairman of Kansai Electric Power was or is also the deputy chairman of an expert committee sort of that focuses on bringing an integrated resort to Wakayama. And it just so happens that he's also said to be on very good terms with Nikkei from uh -huh. Nikkei's time as an <laughs> economic minister. And then also there is a group from Macau, the Sun City Group, that submitted a proposal to Wakayama Prefecture to uh -huh. build their IR and operate it. And I wonder if there was any connection between a this submission of a proposal by this Macau-based group and a Japan-Macau friendship alliance that was established in June of this year. Ooh. And I suppose by now, you know, even though this Japan-Macau friendship alliance is you know, officially is kind of concerned with building smart cities and low-carbon societies and all those good things we've heard about. Oh, yeah. Many times. But, well, perhaps there's no connection. It's surely just coincidence. But Nikkei is the top advisor to this alliance. And oh, a number boy. of politicians... <laughs> a number of politicians in the Nikkei faction are also members of the alliance. So, if you were a betting man, yes, would you put your money on Osaka or Wakayama for the uh, the West Japan casino? 
Oh, well, I mean, it's of course, it's no connection to what we've talked about today, but just based on the merits of the different areas, I'd have to say uh, Wakayama, certainly. Oh. I mean, uh, you know, of course, again, no connection to the fact that very powerful figures within the LDP seem to have close connections with mm -hmm. Wakayama and support it. And just one little bonus bit for you. Remember at the top, I mentioned the politician, uh, Tsukasa Akimoto, who has been arrested on this kind of strange reverse bribery thing. Yeah. You know, apparently bribing back the people who bribed him in order to provide I thought it would just testimony. cancel out. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, it never right, happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be a simpler world, wouldn't it, if that was the case, but... By now, you probably will not be surprised to hear that he also is a member of the, or was a member of the Nikai faction. Ah, uh, yes. Of course. So. Of course. So, no kind of smoking gun here. It's not an outright case of corruption, perhaps, but it does appear somewhat shady, I suppose we might say. Yeah, yeah. At the core of this story, we have this company, strange company, Kazumichi. Well, the company itself is fine, whatever, but very close ties with Nikai. And yeah, just the, the web, the web of interests is staggering. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. And holding on to this bit of land. I mean, you don't really see this kind of story reported in the West a lot just because it's a bit difficult for... Western media, I think, to get their heads around him because, you know, you need to go into it in some detail before these connections start to become apparent. Yeah, yeah. Same thing with, like, the Moritomo land scandal. And even, as well, to some extent, the Sakura Murukai. You know, just mm -hmm. all the corruption and things, it's not immediately apparent. It takes a bit of getting your head around. But, I mean, my impression, at least, is that this is just a large part of the way politics is done in Japan, unfortunately. Yeah, like, yeah. It, it, do, it doesn't make it right, but it's just it's just how it is over here, yeah. Yeah, people sort of, perhaps, to some extent, you know, looking out for themselves and their own factions and serving their own interests and those of people, people around them. Yeah. You know, it sounds like this Kazumichi company is probably going to do pretty well for themselves if the marina city in Wakayama is, is indeed chosen as the site yeah. of an IR. Well, we'll uh, keep an eye on that one as well. Yes, sir. Yeah. Whatever happens, it will certainly be interesting to see what, you know, what sites are chosen to mm -hmm. hold the IR. For sure. Although it's not going to be for a while yet. Yeah, another year or two. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, okay, I think we've, uh, yeah, got them about uh, we're about an hour and ten right now. Mm. So if you're if you're still here, thanks for sticking around. And uh, yeah, we'll close it off here. So you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And if you wish to get in touch, we have a number of ways. Uh, we got our social media accounts. Uh, we got Twitter. And Instagram, our username on both of those is Real Japan Guys. And we also have a website at thereal.jp. And you can email us at mail at thereal.jp. 
So on that note, we will see y'all again next week. Goodbye, listeners. Bye-bye.